0: I'm Andrew Smith, and this is Today in Church History, a place we're reminded that history is truly His story. History is the story of God and the demonstration of His glory in the theater of world events. Today is Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. But on this day in history, March 24, 1861, Charles Spurgeon preached his first sermon in the newly built Metropolitan Tabernacle. We learn something significant about Spurgeon the preacher as well as the focus of his ministry from some of the first lines of this sermon where he said, in part, and I quote, "...I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house... As long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist, although I claim to be rather a Calvinist according to Calvin than after the modern debased fashion. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. You have there, pointing to the baptistry, substantial evidence that I am not ashamed of that ordinance of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if I am asked to say, what is my creed? I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerable predecessor, Dr. Gill, has left a body of divinity admirable and excellent in its way. But the body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not his system of divinity or any other human treatise, but Christ Jesus. Who is the sum and substance of the Gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. Quote. In this podcast, I'd like to show, with support of course, what Spurgeon did not mean by this statement, followed by what he did mean. First, Spurgeon was not suggesting that his Calvinism or Baptistic principles were unimportant to him. He was making a comparison. He was not recanting his Calvinism, but a certain type of hyper-Calvinism prevalent in his day, right there in London where he pastored. Nor was Spurgeon saying that his being a Baptist was somehow not consistent with his own convictions. And perhaps more importantly, he was not affirming some bland, vanilla adherence to no creed but Christ concept which has become common in our own day. I suppose he could be easily taken out of context, but Spurgeon's simple point was that Christ Jesus was more important to him than all of these other things. What Spurgeon meant was that one is not saved by a system of teaching or mental adherence to a certain doctrine, even if that doctrine is orthodox. No, one must be born again by the sovereign Spirit. One must submit to Jesus Christ as rightful Lord and King. One must be forgiven in and through Christ. One must become a follower of Christ. One's allegiance must be to Christ and to Christ alone. Now let's analyze how Spurgeon's commitment to Christ worked out in both his life and ministry. First, Spurgeon says in this statement that he is a Calvinist according to Calvin. That is to say, Spurgeon believed that many in his day were not following true Calvinism. And he was right. Hyper-Calvinism is not true Calvinism. Calvin was extraordinarily evangelistic, both in his sermons and the sending of countless missionaries to plant churches all across Europe, the UK, and even Brazil. Spurgeon unapologetically made gospel appeals to the lost. He used Jesus as his model, who also called the lost to faith and repentance. In this sense, Spurgeon was a true Calvinist. He rightly saw that God not only ordains the end, those elected who will be saved, and the means to the end, the preaching of the gospel by man, to accomplish his glorious purposes. In our own day, may I boldly suggest that we should only be Calvinists according to Calvin. There are many within the so-called young, restless, and reformed movement that are anything but reformed. Their theology is largely not Calvinistic. Their ecclesiology certainly is not Calvinistic, and even their soteriology, when you analyze it, reveals itself to be far less than Calvinistic. Their methodology betrays them as pragmatic and pagan. I use pagan in the sense of worldly. Not that they're not sincere, but they are sincerely wrong, following the ways of the world. Spurgeon, if he were alive today, would not espouse such, quote-unquote, Calvinism, because it's not true Calvinism. It's not Calvinism according to the scriptures, and it's not Calvinism according to Calvin. Second, It's interesting that Spurgeon mentions his predecessor, John Gill, when he says in his sermon, "...my venerable predecessor, Dr. Gill, has left a body of divinity admirable and excellent in its way. But the body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not his system of divinity or any other human treatise, but Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel." Spurgeon obviously was not criticizing John Gill, for to do so would be to criticize the long line of godly men who pastored Metropolitan Tabernacle before it was even known as Metropolitan Tabernacle. It wasn't just John Gill who was a Calvinist, every preceding minister was as well. Spurgeon pastored a church of great Calvinistic history, and it would be very difficult to somehow affirm that Spurgeon overlooked or saw as indifferent the importance of this history. Metropolitan Tabernacle, as it became known, dated all the way back to 1650, shortly after the pilgrims sailed away for religious freedom. The Baptists in England were banned from meeting, and the first pastor of Spurgeon's church gathered with a group in Kennington in a house. The pastor's name was William Ryder, who died of the plague. Following Ryder was the well-known Benjamin Keach, a prolific Calvinistic pastor and writer. He wrote a catechism still in use today and was an instrumental Baptist leader of his own day. He was a warrior preacher who fought against the persecution and was successful. The first chapel was built during his time as pastor near what was called Tower Bridge. This was built once the persecution abated for Baptists in the year 1688. The next pastor was John Gill, known for his staunch Calvinism. Gill's writings, like Keech's, have survived into our own day, especially his commentaries on the scriptures. Keech was a pastor for 51 years, beginning in 1720, and was an adamant promoter of the preaching of George Whitfield. In fact, the church grew during this time partly due to the preaching of Whitfield, who preached close by, particularly in the year 1739, where many souls were saved. The next pastor was John Rippon, who outdid Gill by serving for 63 years. By his death, the church became the largest Baptist church in the world. When Spurgeon became the pastor in 1853 at the New Park Street Chapel, as it was called, he stepped into this unprecedented Calvinistic pedigree. He knew what he was stepping into. Doctrine was important to him, the right doctrine, Calvinistic doctrine. Church historian Stephen Nichols quotes Spurgeon's remarks in the preface to one of his old commentaries where Spurgeon actually mocks those who say they don't need to use commentaries to prepare sermons. In other words, what Spurgeon is getting at is that it's foolish to think that you don't need other men throughout history to depend upon, to lean upon as we go to the scriptures to understand them. Spurgeon says, and I quote, "...it seems odd that certain men who talk so much of what the Holy Spirit reveals to themselves, apart from commentaries, should think so little of what he has revealed to others," end quote, referring to those who wrote these commentaries on the Bible. Interestingly, Nichols offers this profound insight. He says, "...but what if we were to expand Spurgeon's argument in order to apply it to the relationship of today's church to church history?" Here's my paraphrase of Spurgeon's argument. I find it odd that the church of the 21st century thinks so highly of what the Holy Spirit has taught it today that it thinks so little of what the Holy Spirit taught the church in the 1st century, the 2nd, the 3rd, the 4th, and so on and so on. Nichols goes on to say, The Holy Spirit is not unique to our age. The Holy Spirit has been at work in the church for the past 20 centuries. We could put the matter this way. It is rather prideful. Nichols says, to think that we have nothing to learn from the past, End quote. You would be hard-pressed to convince me that Spurgeon would not give a hearty amen to that statement by Stephen Nichols. But there is a third thing I want us to point out. Of course, doctrine was important to Spurgeon. The whole downgrade controversy was the result of Spurgeon remaining steady and strong when everyone else vacillated on doctrine. He was literally one of the only Baptists in all of England that stood for truth in his own day. He was vilified for his refusal to capitulate on doctrine. Therefore, it should be clear that his attachment to Christ Jesus and not any system of man was not a criticism of Calvinism in any way, shape, or form. He staunchly held to Calvinism until the day he died. But he was an unashamed Calvinist because he believed Calvin simply taught what the scriptures obviously taught. Fourth, many overlook the fact that the eminent A.T. Pearson was the man that Spurgeon selected as his interim successor at Metropolitan Tabernacle. Upon Spurgeon's death, Pearson pastored there from 1891 to 1893. Spurgeon was friends with Pearson, and Pearson often filled the pulpit while Spurgeon was still alive, especially on those Sundays Spurgeon was too sick to leave his bed. Now, I bring this up because Pearson was a Presbyterian, not a Baptist. Now, Pearson later became, many years after Spurgeon's death, a convinced Baptist, and was actually baptized by Charles Spurgeon's brother, James Spurgeon, when Pearson was at the age of 58. But why would Spurgeon allow a Presbyterian, not yet immersed, behind the sacred desk of such respected theological pedigree as Metropolitan Tabernacle? Well, because Pearson was a theologically orthodox Calvinist, that's why, and this did not make Spurgeon a non-committed Baptist. He said, I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. You have there, pointing to the baptistry, substantial evidence that I am not ashamed of the ordinance of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if I am asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. Here's where I think we can learn even more than we already have from Spurgeon. His commitment to Jesus Christ was so strong that he was naturally committed to those true Christians who did not agree with him in every detail. Spurgeon was not afraid, on the one hand, to fight, to fight for doctrinal truth, when it mattered, on the most important things. We need more of this attitude in our church today. Perhaps if we did, there would be more Spurgeon-like preachers. Perhaps if we did, the church might see the sort of blessing that was apparently on Spurgeon's own ministry. Stephen Nichols said it best when he said, and I quote, "...Spurgeon has friends across many pews. Baptists like Spurgeon because he was a Baptist." Presbyterians like Spurgeon because he was so reformed. Even Lutherans like Spurgeon because he was very nearly a 19th century version of Martin Luther, quote. May such balance and grace reflect all Christians. Our commitment is to Christ and to Christ alone. We must be willing to die for our convictions. At the same time, we must be able to discern where Christian fellowship is not compromising and be bold to pursue such sanctioned fellowship because in many ways our commitment to other true believers reveals our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ above all. But how can we do this if we are ignorant of history? History sharpens our discernment. We must not be more narrow-minded than the scriptures themselves. Christ Jesus is the glue that holds his church together. That's all Spurgeon was saying. If we are committed to Christ, then we will be committed to His Word, and a commitment to His Word means we are adamant adherents to divine sovereignty. This enables us to see that God does use men, men like Spurgeon, to serve as guardrails to what we believe or what we should not believe. Spurgeon, along with all the other reformers, recognized this, the significance of history and those throughout history that God has used, without falling into the trap of becoming idolaters. God uses men. He uses imperfect men. History is full of them. Indeed, history chronicles only imperfect men, save our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon made Christ the focus of his ministry. That was his goal, as stated in this first sermon preached at Metropolitan Tabernacle. When Christ is the focus of our lives and ministries, all else falls in place. We will have the right perspective of history, theology, Ecclesiology, Preaching, and Christian Living. You've been listening to Today in Church History. To access more podcasts, you can visit my website, www.heartaflame.org. You can also search for me on Apple iTunes, simply by searching for Today in Church History. Just remember that history is spelled H-I-S hyphen Until next time, this is Andrew Smith.